0: His this is a subject which Rav Nachman talks about at tremendous length all over the place. It's one of those themes that is central throughout his teachings that one needs to find a way to constantly give strength to oneself, renewal, to find that extra energy to withstand the daily trials. And he most frequently puts it in the context of the battle that one has in serving God through learning and prayer, ma'asim tovim and mitzvot, between us and other people. But of course the spillover is in every area of one's life because there are challenges in health, in finances, in relationships. And we need chizuk, we need strength, we need encouragement in all these areas all the time. And there 's no such thing as ah oh, now now i 'm free because i 've got my own business because it 's only a matter of time if it 's not the business it 's going to be a client if it 's not a client it 's going to be a brother if it's not a brother it 's a sister or a sister in law or a brother in law or a spouse or a child or a parent or a parent just there 's no such thing as a respite as breathing oh, i'm i 'm free of challenges in Relationships or at last it's plain sailing in my learning. At last I concentrate in my prayers without any distraction. There is no such thing because by definition a human being is programmed to grow and the way God in his sense of humor forces us to grow is by sending us one challenge after the other. So there is no respite and in the fact that we are human and we're programmed to grow and therefore change has to happen all the time and if we don't change There are all sorts of forces, people and events that come into our lives that force us to make different responses and therefore we are forced to change. In that process we're bound to make mistakes, we're bound to do things which we regret, we're bound to do things which we wish we never said or did or even thought and with that comes the famous formula, the famous saying that Rav Nachman stated, if you believe that you can make a mistake and foul up and thereby make a mess if I believe that I'm able to mikalkel to destroy, to ruin then I also have to have the same belief that I have the ability to mitaken to correct, to fix, to perfect what, what is the exact relationship that believing in what I've done wrong forces me to accept that I also can correct it and there are many things we've done wrong which you know once the words come out your mouth uh, that person can carry on quoting and and there's just no way I can you know I can apologize but the fact of the matter is the words came out or I did something or I actually physically destroyed or broke something or harmed someone so what is this special relationship which of nachman is encouraging us to believe that if we have seen with our own eyes that we messed up and in the same way that I believe it happened because it happened and it's a, a level of emuna of, of faith which is certainty, not just blind faith I know it happened because I said it, I did it then where is the logical sequence that dictates I must therefore have the same emuna that I can fix? So Ravnason of Nemirov, that's his most um, ardent of students in the Halachas, has the following explanation. When Moshe Rabbeinu and Moses went up on Har Sinai, one of the items that he requested of Hashem as a gift was that God teach him what is the secret of accessing your mercy. And God gave him the list of 13 midot. 13 tractates, sorry, not tractates, 13 traits of God Which when we recite in public, we access a special compassion Rachamim, mercy, which we would otherwise be unworthy of. And it starts off Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, VeChanun, etc. Now the name of God is doubled, it's repeated, and we're told why is God out of the 13, giving us two of his names, Hashem Hashem, same same name twice and the answer is when Moses asked God, what do you mean by your name twice? God said, I was God when I allowed the person to mess up I was God there when I sustained him and had all the enzymatic chemical reactions in his body continue perfectly so that his body would be able to function in the moment of sin in the moment of violation of one of my mitzvot in the moment of violation of hurting another person whether it was with their mouth or with their hands, with their actions and just as I sustained him then I'm also the same God that is waiting on the other side of the equation that will help that person to fix help that first person that if they want to correct themselves, I will come and help them. So God is saying, I want a person to believe that just as I had to be there, not just holding the person's hand in the violation, in the worst crime possible, not just holding the hand, I had to sustain the person in that moment in order to allow them to do it. No matter what the it is, no matter how many times it is. And if I believe that God was there then God has to be there when I choose to make a switch to control my tongue or to not hurt or to not think badly or to find a way to make this relationship B'Shalom to work after all. In this sense Rav Nachman points out in Sikha Saran that's Rav Nachman's wisdom paragraph three he tells us that Teshuvah the concept of changing ourselves I obviously and deliberately missing, uh, avoiding the regular translation which is repentance it's a catholic christian translation from St. James's bible chapter 6 in Leviticus it's not really, it doesn't serve the true intent behind the word and I've said this many times I'll say it again that when we translate tremendous work in translating Judaism for the public, there are many uh, technical words which have been mistranslated using St. James's Bible in the in the uh, Tanakh series. And I, I don't say that to denigrate, God forbid, or to put down. Uh, the mistakes are being corrected. But the point being, we have to be so careful when we take a word in Hebrew, Teshuvah, for example, and translate it, that we don't use a word which is either... Christian and therefore has all the overtones or take a word which doesn't reflect the original intent behind the Hebrew because Hebrew is Lashon HaKodesh, these are God's words and therefore we have to understand what was His intent when He gave us the word. So the word Teshuvah really means change direction, means return, to turn around literally to return home meaning to say I'm going back to my original source which is God in, in one's life. So the concept of change, to change direction Says with Nachman in, in Sikha Saran, in Nachman's wisdom, the concept here that a person can change the past is unnatural. It goes beyond what you and I would accept as the normal laws of cause and effect. You know, we have an expression, uh, you can't cry over spilt milk. And the assumption, of course, is that once it's spilt, it's spilt. You can't unspill it. Maybe you uh, get the cat to lick it up, it's not some completely wasted But the concept is that you can't change history However, teshuva tells us, the whole concept of turning around Tells us that not only does the past not equal the future But when we change ourselves in the present, we actually change the past We rewrite the script of the past And this very much ties into the whole lesson of hitchazkut to strengthen oneself because the underlying one of the underlying reasons that will cause me to resist change and make me believe that it's not worth the effort anyway is the fact that whatever i've done in the past i'm so connected or attached to or it keeps reappearing in my mind or when I get into a relationship with a new commitment, I'm not going to say that ever again Or I'm not, When I'm a mother, when I'm a father, I'll never speak that way to my children And oh my gosh, I can't believe Under pressure, in a moment of weakness The same words, and perhaps even worse, is coming out My belief about my attachment to my past Is very often what trips me up in the present and the future And if I don't see myself getting beyond that I can give up and say I can't I'm not going to change anyway it's not going to make the difference the effort is only causing more disappointment why even try so the whole lesson about finding strength has to be working on the foundation called it can make a difference or even beyond that it will make a difference if I don't let go if I don't give up so if Nachman's first Words about Teshuvah in Sikhasaran is that it's, unnatural, it's an unnatural concept. In fact, in Medrash Rabbah, right at the beginning of Genesis, tells us that one of the items God created before the world was Teshuvah. The concept that it's possible for a human being to make a mistake. The mistake is part of history and a person by the power of choice in the present can change the history. How is that possible? It's not natural. It doesn't make sense even. It goes beyond the realm of free will. My free will surely is only in one time zone now and it affects the future, but how can my free will today change what happened in the past? And the answer is we're told in Yuma, he actually quotes it, the Talmud in Yuma page 86b that of the different levels of Teshuvah, different levels of quality in changing one's behavior or changing one's attitude or changing one's speech those are three areas we live in our behavior, our speech, our attitude, our mindset in those three areas of the two types of quality of change one would be I'm motivated by fear I'm motivated by fear of the consequences I'm motivated by the pain that if I don't change I'm gonna get I'm gonna suffer terribly. So that's one way of being motivated to change. And that's commendable, it's positive, it's worth it. It's worth it even though it's coming from a negative. But there is a much higher level, teshuva me'ava, when a person's motivated because it's the right thing to do, because God said so, because I become a better me in the process. And therefore, I come closer to God. So say the sages that that level of personal change affects whatever we did that we're changing about, whatever we said, did, or thought, affects in such a way that no matter where it is on the minus scale, it switches to the plus scale. Let me explain that. This is actually this is not just theory. This discussion, which takes place in the Talmud, Yuma 86b is actually halachically, legally codified in the code of Jewish law as enumerated by Maimonides in the laws of Teshuvah it actually claims, and this is halacha, Jewish law that when a person is motivated by love to correct oneself then what I did in the past instead of it being counted as a violation is counted as a mitzvah and what level? whatever level, whatever level that mistake, or that violation was, on the negative side goes all the way to the flip side on the pl- on the plus side of the scale one of the explanations Rabbeinu explains is that what's motivating the person to move forward when I'm motivated by fear, or by pain or suffering of the consequences that I expect to have if I don't change, that's one level of change not the most desirable, but it's still desirable but when I'm motivated because I'm propelled forward for what it's doing for me and what it will do for Hashem the question we have to ask is where is the fuel coming from that a person is so motivated to do God's will and if the answer is they are so propelled away from the mistake they made that every time we think about it I say oh my gosh I can't believe that was me and we detach ourselves more each time that's what's propelling us forward that's forcing us further away. So in other words it's the very minus, the very violation that we did wrong that's causing us. Imagine for example a person either inadvertently or deliberately said lashon Hara, a word of put down or a derogatory term that caused a friend or a colleague or a co-worker terrible anguish. Something that Even if I intended to some degree, I had no idea it would be this bad. And I'm so hurt by it, I start studying Laws of and Hara every day, one or two every day, and I try to make every appeasement with this person, and I'm so sensitive about hurting other people with my tongue, that what's happening over here is that if a person reaches a point where they are positively motivated, then the very thing which they did wrong is the cause for their moving forward There's another explanation of this which Rav Nachman quotes from the Arizal and that's the following It's true we live only in the present the past is always history it's forgotten, it's gone, finished but nevertheless there are several parts to what I did there was the action itself and the intent behind it the action and whatever happened I can't change I can't switch the clock back and make it happen differently But my intent, I can change now Meaning to say, that God will take the teshuva, The desire for change in the moment And whatever is our intent, I wish I never said that about you I wish I never, I never hurt that person the way I did Or treated that child, or that spouse, or that relationship the way I did, or that parent God takes my wish in the now, and He dubs it. He revoices the original intent with the new voice and that doesn't change the action, but it changes the consequences because in Jewish law, God forbid a person murders, and it's on videotape, and the same action is done another time, but this time it was manslaughter. It was not with intent to murder, it was done inadvertently. So you got manslaughter on the one hand which is unintentional and you got actual murder which was planned. And let's just say for argument that both were put on tape and the exact same scenario looks identical on tape. Both exactly the same. How do you know the difference? You don't. On tape it's exactly the same. Visually in action the same thing took place. A human being's life was taken. But you and I know that the consequence for murder could be the electric chair. In Jewish law, there's four different types of Mises based in, death penalties. But the consequences for manslaughter may be a warning, possibly a little bit of a jail sentence, possibly even being going, going scot-free. But they're the same act. The answer is, it's different intent. God will take my new intent and dub it, revoice it, over the old intent and change its consequences for me and for anything else that's happening in the world because of that action so it's possible to actually change the consequences of the past based on choices in the present that's what's powerful about Teshuvah and that's why it goes beyond the realm of free will it's unnatural, it does not go according to the laws of cause and effect it's beyond them that's why it was created before the six days of creation Rav Nachman points out also in Sikh Aran in paragraph three, he even states that Teshuvah is higher than the Torah itself. This is this sounds like a very dangerous statement, but actually, when you start to analyze it carefully, it's quite it's quite straightforward. The Talmud itself, in Brachas page seventeen, says Tachlit HaChokma, the purpose of wisdom. And Rashi says we're referring to Torah wisdom. What is the purpose of Torah wisdom? What is the purpose of, the purpose of learning? Teshuvah Masim tovim To correct oneself and to improve upon one's mitzvot One's behavior between oneself and others So we see the purpose, the result that we want learning to do to us The result of learning Torah is a change in ourselves So Teshuvah is beyond Torah It's not such a highfalutin concept Rav well, Nachman points out that with regard to this whole concept that teshuva, changing our choices, affects us and the world around us involves many hidden concepts but the main message is that no matter how far I have fallen and no matter how negative my experiences have been it's never impossible to turn back and turn them around and come back to Hashem and he quotes from Tehillim which we say every day To the greatness of God, there is no depth, there is no end, no limit. God's greatness is unlimited, which means that there is no limitation on God's ability to turn around our mistakes. The main thing, which Rav Nachman says again and again and again, is not to despair. Not to give up hope. And what is it not to give up hope in? Crying out to Hashem. Because if God is the one that has unlimited power to change around other people's thoughts, other people's decisions, other people's personality, and if not, help us move forward so that we mature and realize that they're just simply not for us, or I should move on, or I should find another way of dealing with them. If God is really the one that can turn events, people, relationships around, then He's the one I need to call out to and beg, please, Hashem there is no such thing as giving up hope because you exist and if you exist then there is always the possibility of a turnaround a breakthrough in Sikha Saran also from Rav Nachman's wisdom in paragraph 11 Rav Nachman said the following of this I am certain and I know extremely well that there is no such thing as any effort no matter how small that is wasted. There's no such thing as any effort that is ever wasted. Especially desire. So many times I desire something in my life and it hasn't happened yet. or it hasn't happened to its full extent. I want to move on. I want children. Or I want marriage. Or I want out of this marriage. I want a different career. I want to make a switch. And it's uphill, up a mountain all the way. And I don't see the result of my efforts. So what's going to make the breakthrough? Ultimately What is the quality of our efforts determined by, if not the power of the desire behind it? How much am I willing to move in order to have this happen? It's not an easy statement to make but the basis is that That nothing stands in front of desire determination now I could easily say wait a minute there are many things that I can look back on my lifetime that didn't happen that I desired so where did it happen? and the answer is this is not the only dimension we live in there's much much more sometimes sometimes the very thing we desire God makes a account of my desires and says I know you wanted this because you wanted children but I saved it so that the person that you prayed for or the person that you introduced and they got married their children are counted as your children and for whatever reason you and I have no access to it can it can sometimes be that God will say no to my prayer for me now, in order to say yes for it somewhere else and even though I don't experience that pleasure maybe in this lifetime and maybe I will but maybe I won't, if I don't is it because I've been denied or is there another dimension where perhaps in this particular life cycle that's not why I'm here because I accomplished that in the previous life cycle in which case all that desire goes somewhere else I'll quickly give an example, we see from Sara Menu. Sarah was barren 90 years, and yet she had to grapple with a very great difficulty. Had she not been promised children, there would be one challenge. But to be promised children and to live to the ripe age of 90 and be barren she now had to live with a double challenge of wanting children and knowing that God had promised her and yet nothing has happened yet and then strangely we're told that Sarah if she were asked at any point in her life what was life like she would tell you my whole life was equally good and this sounds absurd here you have a woman who was kidnapped twice she gave her own maid, to be a co-wife, how many women here would mind sharing their husband with another I mean what's going on over here, that was suffering par excellence she suffered the same tests that Abraham suffered when he was in the furnace I doubt she was making pizza saying "Ape, hey, see you later, I mean you know what's going on over here she went through the same suffering he went through, she went through the same famines and she's barren for 90 years and yet Rashi tells us, he quotes the Talmud in page 20, uh, chapter 25 in Genesis when you, when you ask why was the life of Sarah a hundred years and twenty years and seven years these were the days of the life of Sarah there's a repetition, these are the days of the life of Sarah says Rashi because it doesn't make any difference which days of her life you take out and make a video clip of that's not her, his words exactly but it's Kulan Shavim the all her life was equally good wait a minute, she was barren 90 years And the answer is, if we asked Sarah, you know what, what happened to all those cries that you wanted a child and you were not answered, you were delayed. I think the answer she would give is the following. There are two things at play here. Number one, the item I want. And number two, coming close to God. The real goal in God holding back anything from me is to create a relationship, a place where I can exercise a communication with my my Creator. And therefore, knowing that each time I was held back from pregnancy was another reason for me to cry out. And each time I cried out, I was demonstrating my belief, my certainty that you God can change even nature. You can change the events. And in that, I was creating more and more of a relationship with my Creator. So what really came out of this, was that more than the child that was born was the person that Sarah became through the process of constantly having to turn to God for the answer to what she was looking for in her life and this was the lesson that she taught to all the women that came to her There are many examples we can give, but the bottom line is that sometimes the purpose of suffering of a challenge, whether it's a medical setback, a physical setback, God forbid, a financial setback, a relationship, whatever is that particular suffering or challenge, sometimes the purpose is way beyond kapara, way beyond atonement for mistakes that I may have made in the past. The fact that I have to go through this difficulty is also a moment of choice. Where do I turn? Do I blame my parents? Do I blame society, the environment, the values of this culture? Do I blame my education? Do I blame my peers? Do I blame my spouse, my children, my career, my boss? It just goes on and on. Or, God, were you here all along? Oh, you were here, you you were behind this, you designed it, you calculated everything. I need to talk to you about this. I need to have a relationship with you. Because if you are the one who is really behind it, then who do I need to be turning to? Do I need to change my parents? My spouse? My children? My environment? The political scene? Who do I need to change? Where do I need to change? If you are really behind it, if I can come to that admission, then I have to deal with my relationship with, with my Creator. And that's what Hashem wanted, the obstacle and the challenge in my life in the first place. Even if I mess up a hundred times, that means I've got a hundred times to come back. It's God's way, forgive me for putting it this way, it's God's way of forcing us to be close. It's God's way of forcing us to turn to Him. Yeah. Uh, Susan's question is How do you explain luck and fate to someone who doesn't believe in in God? Is that your question? You're getting into deep water over here but I would say like this When a person walks on the street and they get home safely they can open up a newspaper when they get home and discover that on the same street only a few minutes afterwards a car was on a head-on collision and swerved off onto the curb and knocked down a pedestrian and killed them There there are so many things going right that are way way beyond whatever is going wrong What's responsible for that? In our body, even when we're diseased there's far more immeasurably greater enzymatic chemical reactions that are taking place which are serving the physical health than not The question is what's behind that? So when we talk about fate, we have to ask ourselves, it's both sides of the equation. It's not only fate when things go wrong. I'm not answering your question fully, but the very word fate uh, doesn't really exist in Hebrew. The word Mazal, which translates as luck, refers to the constellations, which we do believe has a power in determining the future specifically of the nations, not of the Jewish people, because prayer, Tefillah, which is what we're talking about here, uh, is what can turn fate around. I'll quickly take your question, Shoshana. I'll I'll try and answer you more fully at the end. Question. What happens if you're praying for someone um, uh, very dear to you and they are are critically ill. And not only you, but you instigate uh, thousands of people to pray for this person. And say to Hillim, and do mitzvahs, and days of not speaking and hara, and all sorts of other campaigns of mitzvahs, and the person passes away. What happened to all those efforts? What happened to all those cries? What happened to all those tears? One answer is that Baal Shem Tov says there's no such thing as a wasted filler for someone who's suffering. It's accounted for the entire Jewish people, or for whoever it is that you're praying for. Which means that if this person wasn't saved through those prayers. It's because it's been decreed that they're going to die anyway. But in their merit, in their merit, they certainly have caused many people to do mitzvahs and to pray and say to him, etc. So that goes number one to their credit in the world of truth. And secondly, all those prayers are transferred to someone who actually does need it. And maybe it's either preventive, in other words, a person who was decreed to die or suffer terribly was now spared completely and no one knows about it. Because all those prayers were fed into that person's account and therefore whatever was supposed to be debited was now taken care of or in other situations could go to someone else with the same need and now that person has children or becomes married. You and I, we, you know, we, don't, we can't keep calculation. All we do know is that in Muna. Knowing that God is really behind Auschwitz, God is behind the Persian Empire and the Babylonian exile and the Roman exile and all the crucif- crucifications of Jews and all the burnings of Jews in the Inquisition and all the pogroms and the, again it just goes on and on and on. If God was there all along Finally, one day, yes, there will be a time when Messiah comes and we will sit and watch the most amazing and powerful movie ever played from the beginning of creation all the way till the end of Messiah we will see the strings that were being pulled behind every effort that we didn't see the result but the result was somewhere else and if it wasn't for us, it was for our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or it was held off held off for some other member of the family and, the, and the, their continuity was a merit to us. It's impossible for us to calculate that in our lifetime because God does not give us access. We have physical experiences which we are limited, limited to and we do not understand the full picture. But there will be a time when we will finally see that. In the meantime, we have to ask ourselves what will keep us strong? What will hold us strong? In Sikh paragraph 48, where Nachman says of himself, that he would make a commitment, let's say, he would say, okay I'm going on a diet now he wasn't doing it for the sake of losing weight but he was doing it for the sake of controlling himself call it the same thing if you like and he said in the same day he would fall as much as a dozen or even a hundred times from his new commitment and he would start again he said it makes no difference how many times we fall that is irrelevant because upstairs How much or less suffering each of us had, is basically technical. The real difference in measure between one person and another is how we responded to our challenges in our lives. It's not how many times I tried to control myself, it's how many times I did not give up. So it's getting up the last time. It's like Chaim Kramer, my Rabbi Rabbi Chaim Kramer always used to say, I might be down but I'm not out. Yes, I'm down, but I'm not out of the game, I haven't given up, I'm down, that's a reality. Right now, the wave is on the low, but there's another reality, and that's the reality that God programmed into the Bria, into creation itself, to teach the greatest lesson of all, and what's that program? Four seasons, day, night, renewal, you put a seed in the ground, it begins to rot before it takes root, and then just as the winter, Ends, you think that this seed is finished, and suddenly the first fruits are, are taking place, and eventually you're going to see a budding tree. Every spring comes the tree and it buds its new blossoms. There are seasons of renewal in creation that are deliberately programmed in order to teach us that's the natural course, and it's natural for someone who wants the best for themselves to go up and down up and down Moses was in solitary confinement for 10 years up and down Abraham was in solitary confinement for 10 years under Nimrod up and down Sarah was barren 90 years up and down kidnapped twice life is all ups and downs it's never Smooth, and if it is, it corresponds to a cardiograph, you know, whether then you then we're in trouble. We want it to be going up and down, up and down because that means we're alive. That means never a dull moment. There's action, there's what to live for, there's what to fight and be challenged by. But life is not meant to be smooth, it's impossible, it cannot be that way, it never will be that way. What I have to learn to respect are the downs. That that's part of the process. I may be down, but I'm not out. And what can hurt is I'm often down. I'm frequently down. But not giving up is the ultimate message. And not giving up, it doesn't matter how many times I fall, not giving up is what makes us strong. Gene Taney, I don't know if you remember him, was the un- unchallenged uh, heavyweight champion uh, of boxing in the world. And when asked, how did you become the undefeated champion? He said, it's because I broke both my, both my hands and knuckles in the, in the army. And I was told by my doctors and surgeons, I will never be able to fight again. And when I heard that, I said, I'm going to fight their diagnosis. I'm not going to accept that. And he trained himself. And finally, he was back in the ring, undefeated champion. The concept is found everywhere. Wherever we look, it's don't give up. A Harvard Report said it many times claims that multimillionaires are the ones who failed the most times in business. But in order to fail the most times they had to pick themselves up each time as well. So it may be they didn't go into the same business and they got drop dropped their partner from last time, but they figured out another way to do it. And when that didn't work out, figured out another way. Ravi Akiva, twenty four thousand students. All die in a terrible plague. Why? For their level, they were not showing the right respect for each other. And here we are, Rabbi Kiva, 64 years old, 40 years starting as a, in his career as a Jew, somewhat late, but didn't give up, and 24 years studying, ends up with 24,000 students and they all die. Now, how would, how would you and I take that? What kind of message would we take? Encouragement to start again or I guess something's wrong with me. I, I'm just not worthy. He didn't give up. He started again. This time he only had five students. Ooh, which five students? Rabbi Meir? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Rabbi Yossi? The greatest tanayim, the Authors of the Mishnah. No, Nothing small going on over here. What did it take for him to say, I'm going to start again? after seeing 24,000 of his own students perish. We see it throughout our history, the stubbornness, the Azus digdusha, that holy stubbornness of the holy stubborn Jew that just doesn't give up. We put God on trial in Auschwitz and we said he was guilty. And having given that verdict, the next thing they did, Pray Mariv. What's going on? Stubborn Jew. We don't understand God. To us it looks like you're guilty, but we know that you're God, and that we're man. And therefore from your perspective, obviously this is just, but we don't understand it. And therefore that has nothing to do with the cycle of life. Mariv goes on. Praying, the evening service goes on. The sun comes up the next morning, no matter how angry God is with us, to teach us that no matter how bad it is, we say krechma the next morning. We dive wash them the next morning. The routine of serving God continues. No matter how far down and how far I've fallen, I can still come back again. My history doesn't equal who I am now. My choices now equal who I am now. My choices now equal who I'm becoming in the future. It's interesting that even the body sheds its skin and the bone tissue renews itself. I don't remember how many uh, many years it takes for the uh, bone tissue to renew but there's nothing in the physical creation which isn't constantly renewed and the lesson is there, ingrained, imprinted on creation itself for us through science to discover that there's nothing which isn't renewed because the lesson is for us to know that no matter how dark it is there's always another day no matter how much it rains it doesn't make matter how cloudy it is, even if you live in London most of your life, the sun is always shining above the clouds. It's always shining. I don't see it shining, I need to move to California. It's always shining. We don't always notice it. God is always shining. Sometimes there may be a cloud in the way. It may be, sometimes as Rav Nachman quotes the Baal Shem Tov, as small an item as a coin in front of my eye and I cannot see a mountain because the coin is obscuring my vision sometimes money can obscure my vision sometimes materialism, sometimes other items can allow me not to see the bigger picture but there's always a sun shining there is always what to look forward to the question is how big a view am I willing to look at? so the underlying message here is that every day is another day To serve Hashem, to come back with learning, with prayer. And if I do lose a day, yes it's true, that day will never return. But there's always another sunrise. There is another day. And so much so, that even if I've, God forbid, wasted a lot of my days, it's possible to redeem them, depending on how I use my present days. It's possible to redeem my past. It's even possible to give a prayer to God. You know what God? I've wasted weeks, years, decades of my life, please, please, you know what, don't take it off, don't take it off my my expiry date, do me a favor, I want to be a better Jew starting now, extend my expiry date, move it forward, and for the same number of years that I've missed out, give them back to me, please, and if I can't have them in seconds and minutes and hours and days and months and years give it to me in quality that I'm able in a, in less time to do more not with Bahala, not with haste and rush and desperation but allow that perhaps one person I touch in my lifetime is responsible for touching many thousands and it's directly because of what I did for that person or if it can't be me, let it be that I leave behind some merit that affected a quality person in a way that helped them turn other people's lives around so that even if God forbid I missed out on the many opportunities that doesn't take you God away from your imagination you have unlimited possibilities in giving me merit in giving me schus even if I don't get married God forbid or even I don't have children God forbid there's still unlimited ways you can create a merit that when I come upstairs, I have nothing to be ashamed of. The Benish says that, God forbid, a couple who are barren, have no children in their lifetime, could find that when they come to Tichyat HaMetim, the resurrection of the dead, they will be overwhelmed by many more children who claim to be theirs than other people who in their lifetime did have children. And he explains how is that possible, because a husband and wife, even though, God forbid, they're not blessed with children, the fact of the matter is that physical intimacy still creates a nishama, And that neshamah has to have a body somewhere, even if it doesn't come from this couple. It's difficult to understand these concepts, but the point again is there's no such thing as wasted effort. Even intent, desire, is counted as actuality, as reality. So it comes out that the stronger our desires we can actually create merit from that alone a person desires to help bring them shiach a person desires the rabbi, rabbi rosenfeld the love the Rebbe of, of Chaim Kramer also the Rebbe of Rabbi Eric Kaplan um, i remember him once saying that the person who wants to finish us he wants to do Dafiyami but doesn't got enough time but at least he says to God God i really i, I want to finish us many times in my lifetime he demonstrated a desire gets the credit, as though he actually did. Now it's not going to count the same as as really following through in actual action and doing a page a day for seven years. But we're told desire has a reality, it is a power. You and I haven't yet discovered the technology that's able to identify how desire has a physical manifestation. But according to Tara, Torah, desire creates a physical effect. Something happens in the universe in other people's lives or in our own lives because of our thoughts You know how it is when you talk to someone and you just you feel they're not listening You feel they're not really empathizing But how do you know? There's no body language because you're talking to them over the phone. So how do you know? The answer is there is a power in silence and there's a power in the word and We do know because there is an antenna that is able to detect it. It's the Neshamah There is a power, a reality, to our desires and our intent and that's why sincerity has such a power. Words that come out of the heart, enter the other person's heart, they will penetrate. Sincerity has that that power. But how do you measure sincerity? In the tonality? Body language? How do you measure desire? The answer is, it exists. Maybe we don't have the technology yet, but it's there. We have a desire to change and we don't change. The desire still counts. I have a desire to change and I do change, all the better. I have a desire to change my spouse and I don't change her, still counts. (laughs) I have a desire that my spouse should understand on their own to change, counts. I ask God, you know what? I give up trying to change her. (laughs) You change her! (laughs) Counts! It all counts! (sighs) The K'mon Brachas, page 32b, tells us that there are four things which need chizuk. Strengthening. One is Torah. Two, ma'asim tovim, our actions, our mitzvot three tefillah, prayer and four derech Eretz and there are three types of derech Eretz Rashi identifies that this particular derech Eretz is referring to a livelihood and Rashi's own words in explaining this Gemara is very beautiful, very, very telling what does it mean? there are th- four things, four items which which need to be strengthened says Rashi, hazek adam bahem tamid that a person needs to constantly strengthen in these areas. There's no such thing as understanding the Torah and then saying, oh, at last I understand it. Because the next day I could come back to the same page, wait a minute, I don't have the same clarity anymore. It's amazing. I still need to do review. Soon after what I learned in order to retain it. Prayer. Yesterday I had Kavanah, today distracted. Today I had half- of a kavana in my Esrei, tomorrow, quarter, there's no end to having to constantly regrip our commitment, our embracement of the things that matter most in our lives, learning and davening and mitzvahs, and Derek Eretz refers specifically to our careers, but what does it mean in our careers? We are told in the G'mon Barakas, page 31a, that there are six questions that we are going to be asked on the divine interview when we pass away and the first one is did we do our business knowing that there's a god on first glance it looks like being honest but does it exclude how we treated our co-workers employees employer of course not there are many halachas. There's an entire section of the Code of Jewish Law, Chaysh Mishpat. Many sections devoted to Oinat Mamun and Oinat Varim. How we treat another person with our words, how we treat them in money. There are areas of ethics unlimited which relate and apply to the area of dealing with people with Emunah. So we constantly need strength in relationships, in the people that we deal with. There's no end. Rav Nachman says... Don't give up, even if you're in a hundred times in the same day I fall from my promise of my own expectation That's the up and down That's the way I have to respect those are the waves up and down, up and down It doesn't matter how many times I fall As long as I keep picking myself up Even if it takes a long time sometimes But just pick up each time Quoting from Le Kutimran, um Lesson number 27 in the first section of Kudu says when a person controls his mind from thinking forbidden thoughts he not only corrects himself in the now but fixes the forbidden thoughts that he may have had in the past similar to what we said earlier that my present intent can change the intent in the past action and here we've been told that controlling our thoughts which is probably the hardest of all areas to control of speech, action and thought To control our thoughts from forbidden areas and to think well of people where we were were thinking ill of them. Or to avoid thoughts of people who we shouldn't have thoughts of or images that we shouldn't have. Or images that we saw in a magazine or a TV commercial or on a bus as we were waiting at the red light. Not to hang those pictures on the walls of our mind. To avoid entertaining those thoughts, says Rav Nachman, is not only an accomplishment in the moment, it's a tikkun, it's a repair, a rectification of those times that in my life I did not willingly control those images, those thoughts. And I did entertain them. So we have the power in the moment to be mechazek, to strengthen ourselves by the choices of how we think, what we think, how we talk, what we talk, how we act, what we act. Yeah, Evelyn, Question: What happens when, wh- what happens when a certain thought has been uh, wired up uh, and it recurs in, in the mind? How do we take uh, immediate control of it? Ramachman uh, says that our thoughts are like are like a rider on a horse, and that it's impossible for the mind to contain two thoughts simultaneously. It's very interesting. Tony Buzan, who does uh, brain research, and many others claim the same. Even though you and I know that we can drive a a stick shift car, smoke a cigarette, listen to a CD, hold a conversation on on the cellular, um, almost simultaneously. So what do you mean you can't do two things at the same time? The answer is, the mind is so brilliantly designed that it's able to flip from one thing to another so fast that it appears as though we're doing two things simultaneously, but it's not true. Our mind cannot entertain two thoughts simultaneously says Reb Nachman, the rider of the horse, the mind of the body We control the reins And we have the power to steer the mind in a different direction You know how it is? You can be really down And suddenly you get a phone call from a close friend Hey! How are you doing? Oh yes! Oh, I can't tell you what happened today And you start getting a comment and say, wait a minute, you haven't spoken for months What happened over here? And the answer is... The mind is able to switch just like the way that, right? Two seconds ago, I was depressed. Suddenly, this person who I haven't spoken to in a very close company, I'm so unjudgmental in my life, that when he or she calls, I, feel, I just feel so open and I can be myself and honest and unashamed because I know that they're not going to judge me, they're going to listen and trust. And it's just a great relation. I love when we call. and You know what it's like? Every time we speak, it's as though we we spoke just a few minutes ago, and it could be weeks or months in between. What, wait a minute, how does the mind work that way? And the answer is, we control. We really do control our minds. Now it looks like the person controlled the, the, the phone call. But what happens if we get excited by learning? Because God's talking to us. Or excited about prayer because we're talking to God. Or excited about his supporters because we're having a conversation with our ultimate therapist and he charges us nothing. And we could do it for hours as long as the discipline holds out. The answer is no two thoughts can be contained in the mind in any one moment, and therefore it's true. Something could, an image could come into my mind. In that moment, I have a challenge of switching to another thought. I will even tell you something extraordinary it's forbidden for a Jew to think Torah in the bathroom. One of the few places a person is uh, forbidden to think Torah. It is consider it so severe a violation to permit lucid thoughts, immoral thoughts and to take those pictures and hang them on the walls of our mind and create galleries out of them and art galleries out of all these thoughts in our minds to then go from one room to the other in our minds it's such a violation of destruction and poison to our minds that it's permitted to learn Torah in the bathroom if a person's doing so in order to avoid having such thoughts. Now I'm, I'm not pascading but I'm saying that's, that's how it states in Aruch. I think it's in Samach uh, Beis chapter 62 thereabouts in Ur Chaim. But I'm, I give this not as a psak, as a legal decision for anyone who has friends who might need to apply this but I say it as a reflection of how powerful we are able to control our thoughts, we can switch off by reading something we want to read or talking to someone we want to talk to or, or listening to music in a, that has certain uh, powerful associations that can uh, take our mind away and uh, with Hashem's help, those thoughts will eventually go away the best thing to do if we have uh, thoughts which are crazy or ridiculous or absurd Is to do all that's just simply to ignore them. If we can't ignore them, to occupy our mind with something else. Rambam says, and it's uh, mentioned in the Hasidus also, that the danger of an empty mind um, from Torah is that a person's mind will turn to immorality. A person's mind will automatically become involved in immoral thoughts. The Gemara tells us that in in Ksubas, I think it's on page 59, it says, that um, a person has to have an occupation. Because if not, batala being unoccupied will lead either to, God forbid, insanity, or to immor- immorality. So my mind needs to be occupied. But that says I can occupy my mind. Um, in the Kute Eitzes, under the title of Hitchaskus. Quoting the Quoting around in, in Torah number 6, which deserves much more time than we have left, so we're going to stop in a few moments, tells us that because life is up and down, that's the reality. I need to become a master of the ups and the downs. I need to know how to respond, that when, it, when it's an up, there's still further to go. And when it's a down, I can always pick myself up again and not to allow myself to believe that this is where I really am, this is who I really am this is oh I'm back in the past again I can't believe I haven't changed at all no I have changed. Someone once told me an interesting example that many times we think we're going backwards but really what God is doing he's putting us through a similar challenge but we're not the same person as yesterday it's rather like that instead of Going backwards we're going in this direction. We're moving forwards but we're turning around as we go and as we turn around in that direction I think oh my gosh that I've been I'm I'm back here again no 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 I'm further away from back here but we don't always notice it because I'm facing back the same problems again and I don't necessarily acknowledge that progress is really being made I'm turning around as I move forward and when I turn around I think oh my gosh look what I'm facing my old stuff again It's not the same stuff because I'm not the same person as I move forward Sometimes Hashem has to throw it back in my eyes, in my ears, in my life To exercise my response Because that's where I change And that's the only place where I can change How to challenge my anger, my patience I've got to go through The very people that challenge my anger and my patience Those that touch the buttons My mother-in-law, my father-in-law, whoever it is Until I master my emotions and take control of my mind, and my thoughts, and my emotions, God has got to send me back similar situations, whether it's in business, in my career, in my relationships, siblings, parents, etc. till I take control. So the chizuk, the re-strengthening, is in the exercises. Not to give up. We will go through the downs, and there will be ups. And the main thing is to hold, hold on, and not let go. Um, I'll leave it here, we'll take two questions quickly. And we'll continue this next week. And how do you measure self-growth when you see um, challenges of similar nature coming? How do I know that I'm really moving forward? Um, that's an excellent question. I think one, one possible answer is the following. If you notice um, in, in your conversations with God a completely different way of responding, um, you, will, you will probably know that that is one way of noticing uh, a change in one's growth. Another most obvious one would be where you see a measurable difference in how you control your emotions um, at the time that you are going through a similar challenge. For example, noticing, becoming aware of what you tell yourself when that person or that event unfolds and noticing that it is not the same script as yesterday. If, If that script is one which is serving you and supporting you. Um, and and the words, the thoughts, the script that you're telling yourself uh, are much more related to detachment from the emotion of what's going on and more